Acts chapter 1, if you have a Bible, we'll be looking at verses 15 down through verse 26. Would you all please stand for the reading of God's Word, Acts chapter 1, reading verse 15 down through the end of the chapter. I'll read these verses for us if you just follow along. Acts 1, beginning with verse 14, says, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Acheldema, uh, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become a witness of uh, a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Father, we pray now that you would guide us through this uh, somewhat difficult text, that you would uh, bring clarity through your word, and that you'd give us some principles that we can live our lives by as well. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is going to be a a bit of an unusual sermon, kind of a smorgasbord of different things. Going to go through the text verse by verse like we typically do. Then we're going to do a bit of a deep dive on a theological debate that is brought up in this text about uh, replacing Judas as an apostle, the casting of lots, all of the complexities involved there. And then at the end, we'll get into some practical stuff, some points about uh, us today. How do we discern God's will for our lives uh, and his direction and decision-making, things like that. So uh, hang with us as we go through this. We do have a lot to cover this morning. Uh, We are in week chapter two of our study of the book of Acts, finishing up chapter one. And if you were here with us last week, then you remember that the book of Acts is a sequel to the book of Luke that we've been studying. Uh, It carries forward the story after Jesus dies, rises again, and ascends to heaven. Jesus had left his followers back in Luke 24, and he told them, go into all the world, advancing uh, my kingdom on earth. Make disciples of Jesus in all nations of the world. You might also remember that the first step in their mission, Jesus told them, was first, go to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Spirit. And next week, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, right at the beginning of the chapter, the Holy Spirit does come to them. Uh, So today's text is sandwiched right in between. It takes place during that period of waiting. They're in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus had just left them. And during that 10 days or so while they're waiting for Pentecost to come, that's when our text takes place. Now, we're going to be talking uh, quite a bit today about apostles. So I just want to review quickly what an apostle is. Uh, First of all, the word apostle is not the same as the word disciple. That's a common misunderstanding. All Christians are disciples 
of Jesus. We're all followers of Christ. We obey his teachings. That's what it means to be a disciple. Disciple is synonymous with the word Christian. Uh, Apostle, on the other hand, is an official title that was given to 12 men in the New Testament who are given authority over Christ's church. Uh, This goes far beyond pastoral authority. They were able to write books of the Bible. Okay, I can't do that, just so we're clear. I can't add to Scripture. This was a level of authority well beyond uh, anything else in the church. Apostles were those who possessed the authority to speak on Jesus' behalf. Uh, so Peter, for instance, writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, speaking of the Old Testament writings, and the commandments of, of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So when the apostles wrote, uh, people understood that as Jesus speaking through them. Uh, the best parallel that we would have today would be something like the Pope. Uh, now, of course, we don't think the Pope has that authority. Uh, he's not a true apostle, but... Uh, The way that Catholics wrongly view the papacy today is how Christians rightly viewed apostles of Jesus in the first century. Uh, So to show you how this worked, Jesus explained to these apostles in John 14, this is before he leaves them, he says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Uh, So the Spirit is going to fill these 12 apostles Uh, He's going to remind them, first of all, of things that Jesus had said to them. Uh, So when we read in the Gospels, the the teachings and the parables of Jesus recorded, uh, it's not just, they're they're not going off of memory. Uh, The Holy Spirit is the one who who brought to their remembrance, oh yeah, Jesus did teach that story about the fig tree, and Jesus did give that parable about that uh, unforgiving servant, and those types of things. And so these teachings and parables were given to them first by Jesus, and then the Spirit Uh, reminded them, uh, brought them back to their minds. And then also notice that verse says, not only he's going to bring to remembrance the things Christ has said, but he's also going to teach you. He's going to teach you more. So this is beyond just what Jesus taught on earth. And so that's where you get the rest of the New Testament, the epistles, uh, basically that these apostles wrote. And so the Spirit was guiding them as they're writing the words of our New Testament. That was the Holy Spirit speaking through them. So because these uh, apostles had this kind of authority, it's very important to know who's an apostle and who isn't. Uh, This becomes very crucial, for instance, in Paul's life. If you read 2 Corinthians, you'll see Paul's apostleship was being questioned by some. And so he defends his apostleship by pointing, uh, first of all, to the miracle working power that God had given him as proof that he was a true apostle. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. He says, when I was with you guys, I was was patient, I was calm, I was trying to demonstrate that, yes, I am an apostle of Christ, and I even proved that with these signs, wonders, and mighty works. And so it was very important that Paul could prove his apostleship, uh, because also there were some in Paul's day who were imposters, Uh, might call them imposter apostles, say that five times fast, Uh, claiming to have apostolic authority over the churches, and they deceived some people. For example, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So Paul says, be on the lookout. Uh, Not everybody who says I'm an apostle of Jesus truly is. That's even back in the first century. Uh, Also in the book of Revelation, Jesus says in a vision through the Apostle John, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those that are evil, but have tested those 
who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. So having clarity on who exactly were and were not apostles uh, is very important. As we know from our study of Luke, Jesus initially chose 12 men to be his apostles. At the beginning of his ministry, Luke 6 says, uh, when the day came, he called his disciples, so those are his followers, and he chose 12 of them whom he named apostles. And so it goes on from there to mention the names of the apostles there in Luke 6. Uh, you've got Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, Matthew, and it goes down that whole list. And here in Acts chapter 1, the list in verse 13 that we saw last week is the same list, except one name is missing, Judas Iscariot. Uh, Judas Iscariot isn't among the apostles anymore. In fact, he isn't even alive at this point. Uh, Judas, of course, betrayed Jesus. He handed him over to be killed, handed him over to the, the religious leaders so that they could arrest him. And then Judas went out and hanged himself. And as we'll see in today's text, apparently the knot slipped or the branch broke or something happened. His body ends up falling uh, and bursting on rocks. It's a pretty gnarly description that Luke gives us of his bowels gushing out and things like that. Uh, apparently that's how they found Judas's body. And so that, that sets up the text. Judas is gone, and so Peter believes we need to replace him. Uh, Acts 1, beginning of verse 15, we read, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. So this is the gathered church in Jerusalem. The company of these persons was in all about 120. And he said, notice, by the way, uh, that Peter's the one who initiates this. Peter seems to be viewed as a primary leader of the early church. Just like in, in the Gospels, Peter is sort of the leader of the apostles. Uh, in every list of the Gospels, Peter is the first name. Uh, Peter's the one, the, the, the spokesman for the group, uh, seems to be a leader. Uh, you remember in Matthew 16, Jesus gives Peter a certain level of authority. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will prevail. And so Peter seems to have a, a particular authority uh, in the church, sort of a first among equals uh, among the apostles. And so he stands up, he says to the group of Christians that are gathered there, brothers, verse 16, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So Peter says what Judas Iscariot did in betraying Jesus was predicted in scripture. He says the scriptures had to be fulfilled. The Holy Spirit spoke these things beforehand by the mouth of David. So this is in the book of Psalms. Peter says this was all predicted. Now, if you pause, if you have a Bible in front of you, you can see this. Verses 18 and 19. Uh, this is not Peter talking anymore. If you have an ESV, you'll notice these, are, these two verses are in parentheses. Okay, so this is Luke's editorial note letting us know what happened to Judas Iscariot. Because if you just finished reading Luke's first volume, the, the Gospel of Luke, uh, Judas kind of just disappears from the story. Uh, he betrays Jesus, and then Luke never mentions again what happens to him. And so here in, in Acts 1, Luke ties up that loose end and says uh, Judas is dead, and the money that he was given for betraying Jesus was used to purchase a field. Uh, so beginning of verse 18 says, This man, speaking of Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, the, the payment that he got. Uh, for betraying Jesus. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, all of his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Achaldema, that is, field of blood. Now that all may seem very random uh, to mention. Why is Luke telling us this? I think there's a reason. Uh, Judas got some money for betraying Jesus, 30 pieces of silver, we'll find out. 
And that money was used to, to purchase a field. Uh, and that field is called a field of blood. Presumably, uh, you could read that as because Judas died there. Uh, but probably more likely, it's because blood money was used to purchase it. And so let's go over to Matthew. We're going to see uh, where this all takes place. And then hopefully we'll see kind of the relevance. Why does Luke mention these things? Uh, Matthew 27, beginning verse 3, says, When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, uh, so Jesus had just been sentenced to death, Judas changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. So after Ju Judas betrayed Jesus and, and took his money, Judas feels bad and he tries to go back and return the 30 pieces of silver. And he says in verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, these are the religious leaders, what is that to us? See to it yourselves. You, see, you just see the, the coldness of their hearts, not even caring. Uh, verse 5, throwing the, down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Interesting the things that they choose to have a conscience about. Uh, no problem killing the innocent son of God, but uh, we can't put the money in our, in our treasury. Uh, so they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And then notice verse 9. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the, th the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. So Matthew quotes a text from Jeremiah and also one from Zechariah. And he says that these predicted centuries beforehand what Judas would do, uh, that he would betray Jesus, that how much <laughs> down to the exact amount that he would be paid and even how that money would be used to purchase the field. All of that was fulfilling Old Testament scripture. And that's exactly what Peter says in our text, verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So he's saying there basically, uh, we shouldn't be caught off guard by this. We shouldn't be viewing this situation with Judas as, you know, what happened with him? No, this is exactly what God said was going to happen. Everything Judas did had to take place because scripture had to be fulfilled. So what's the point of this? Uh, why is Luke and Matthew, uh, why are they giving us all of these details about how much Judas was paid, how a field was bought, and, and all of that? Uh, the point is, Judas's betrayal of Jesus did not catch God by surprise. In fact, it was a part of his plan to bring salvation to the world. Uh, God will use these evil actions of Judas in order to accomplish his good purpose. God predicted the betrayal. He knew how much money would be exchanged. He knew the money would be then used to buy a potter's field. None of this caught God by surprise. He wrote it all down centuries before it took place. Uh, John's gospel makes a point of telling us a few times that Ju Jesus knew about Judas uh, from the very beginning. Verse uh, 64 of chapter 6 says, There are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Again, John 13, Jesus says, if you, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Quoting from Psalm 41, verse 9, about Judas Iscariot. Verse 9, I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, 
you may believe that I am he. One more, uh, John 17, 12, Jesus praying to the Father, he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Judas Iscariot betraying Jesus, defecting from the apostleship, this was all part of the plan. It was predicted throughout scripture. And so without diving too deep into how all of that works, uh, with Judas acting freely and doing wrong, but still God is sovereign over all of that. Let me just give you a quote here from John Calvin, and I will leave it at this. Uh, Judas may not be excused on the ground that what, he, that what befell him was prophesied, since he fell away not through the compulsion of prophecy, but through the wickedness of his own heart. In other words, Judas wasn't intending to fulfill Scripture. Okay, He, he, he had wicked intentions for what he did, uh, but... Uh, yet he was unknowingly fulfilling what God had said. And so he is punished for his actions, but at the same time, it was all part of God's purpose and plan. And so after recounting what happened with Judas, uh, Luke goes back to, to Peter's statements. And so verse 16, Peter begins to speak. Verse 18 to 19, Luke kind of inserts, by the way, this is what happened to Judas. And then verse 20, he goes back to Peter's speech. And so we're going to start in verse 16 and skip over verses 18 to 19, the parenthetical in between. Uh, so you can get the flow of this. Uh, notice in verse 16, Peter says these scriptures, the ones he's about to quote, were spoken by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David. Uh, that's a great summary of the doctrine of inspiration. That when we read what Luke wrote or what Paul wrote or what Moses wrote in our Bible, we're reading the words of God spoken through that human instrument. This is the view of scripture that Jesus taught and Peter got it. Uh, he understands what Jesus emphasized in, in Luke 24, that scripture must be fulfilled. Everything God says is going to happen. And that includes what God said about Judas. God said Judas will betray Jesus. He said the money is going to be used to buy this potter's field. And God also said Judas would need to be replaced. And so verse 15, uh, 17 says, He was numbered among us, allotted his share in the ministry. For it is written in the book of Psalms, here comes the quotations, uh, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So two passages in the book of Psalms that Peter quotes here. Uh, the first one, if you want to write these down, Psalm 69, 25. Uh, the second one is Psalm 109, verse 8. And so these <clears throat> prophecies, <clears throat> excuse me, the first prophecy is basically that Judas is going to defect and die. And the second prophecy is that he will need to be replaced. And Peter rightly interprets these texts to be about Judas Iscariot. So he says, uh, this needs to be fulfilled. Judas must be replaced. We've got to have 12 apostles. And so Peter continues, verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Uh, there were, of course, others besides the 12 who followed Jesus throughout his ministry, uh, some who had stayed with him all the way from the baptism of John the Baptist in the Jordan, uh, all the way to the resurrection and ascension. And so Peter says, uh, let's take one of these brothers who has proven their loyalty to Christ over these last few years, and let's appoint him to replace Judas as one of the apostles. Verse 23 says, they put forward two. <clears throat> the first one, his name is Joseph. He's also called called." Uh, Barsabas or Justice. So we've got a Greek name, we've got a Hebrew name, we've got a Latin name. Uh, we'll call him Justice. 
And then you've also got the second guy, which is Matthias. And so they prayed, and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So uh, they make this choice. They got, they got two candidates, and they make the decision between the two by casting lots. Now, if you're new to the Bible, this may seem to be an unfamiliar concept. Uh, so let me give you a brief explanation. Casting lots in Scripture is sort of like rolling a dice or flipping a coin uh, to make a decision. It comes up a few times throughout the Old Testament. For example, when Israel was dividing up uh, the promised land among the tribes, uh, God told them, make those decisions by casting lots to see who would get which plot of land. Again, Jonah, when he's on the ship headed to Tarshish, remember the powerful storm comes, and uh, the sailors decided this has to be God's judgment against them. And so they cast lots to determine who is it that God's angry with. Uh, The lot fell on Jonah. You know the rest of the story. He ends up overboard. Uh, Again, the story of Achan, kind of a similar situation. God told Joshua that there was sin in the camp. And in order to determine who it was that had stolen the riches of Jericho, uh, they cast lots until eventually Achan was selected. And if you have a really good memory from a couple of years ago, you may remember in Luke chapter 1, lots were cast to decide which priest would enter into the temple to offer incense, and Zechariah was chosen. So this comes up several times throughout Scripture as a way to hear from God. Uh, You cast lots, you you flip a coin, and then you trust that God is making known his will through those results. Uh, In fact, Proverbs 16 verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Uh, what it's referring to there, being cast in the lap, uh, this would be kind of weird to explain. But basically, you know, they didn't have pants a whole lot back then. Everybody wore togas or robes of some kind. And so they would put the coin in the flap of fabric as they were sitting. They'd put their legs out. The coin would fly up. That's how you cast lots. And so it's saying there that apparently uh, when you cast lots to make a choice, uh, well, however that lands is from God. Apparently, this was a way that God chose to communicate his will to his people. And so Peter and the others, after selecting two men as candidates who kind of fit their criteria, somebody who was with us from the baptism all the way through to the ascension, uh, then they pray and they ask God to choose. And they cast lots, uh, again, sort of like flipping a coin, and Matthias wins. Now, this whole situation leads to many questions. Because as I pointed out last week when we introduced the book of Acts, sometimes things are recorded in Acts with no comment from Luke as to whether the actions taken were right or wrong. Uh, We can't just assume that because Peter did it, it must have been correct. Uh, Peter isn't Jesus. In fact, at this point, he doesn't even have the filling of the Spirit to lead him. This is prior to Pentecost. And so then you've got that whole question. Then you've also got the the whole lot casting thing, which seems really weird uh, to us today. And so here are a few questions that I had. Number one, should we cast lots to make decisions today? This seems like an obvious question to ask. If this is biblical, uh, should we be doing this? Number two, was Matthias the right choice? Is there any way to know for sure? Uh, Does God ever tell us that Matthias was indeed an apostle? Number three, did Judas really need to be replaced? I mean, why does it have to be 12? What's the big deal? Uh, We've got 11. Can't we be satisfied with that? Uh, Number four, did Peter have the authority to replace Judas. So in other words, even if Judas was supposed to be replaced, does that give Peter the right to just take it upon himself to do this? 
And then number five, what about Paul? Are there really 13 apostles? Because uh, we know Paul, of course, is chosen by Jesus later in the book of Acts and appointed as an apostle. So was Paul supposed to be Judas's replacement? Or is Matthias a genuine apostle and Paul's an apostle, in which case we have 13? So those are a few of my questions. Now that I've raised them, I have to come up with answers. Uh, let's take that first one. Should we cast lots to make decisions today? So for example, uh, two and a half years ago, uh, you all needed a pastor. And so there were a few candidates chosen. Of course, I was one of them. I wasn't there for any of those backdoor meetings between Malachi, Marvin, and, and Brother Cole. Uh, but I assume nobody flipped a coin and nobody rolled a dice. I, I'd be willing to bet that that wasn't how the choice was made. That's just not how we typically make decisions. But the question is, should we? I mean, if that, if that worked for appointing an apostle, uh, shouldn't that work for appointing a pastor or for, for making other choices in the church? If we really want to make sure that God is the one choosing, should we flip a coin and trust him with the results? My opinion on this, and it is just my opinion, let me stress that because I can't prove it clearly. Doesn't uh, The Bible doesn't clearly say one way or the other on this, but I think casting of lots, that method for determining God's will is no longer active. And here's why I think this. First of all, it's never mentioned again. As we go throughout the book of Acts, many times decisions are made, never through this model of casting lots. This is the only time uh, in the book of Acts. In fact, as you continue through the epistles, it's never mentioned. Uh, for example, Acts 6, just to see some of these decisions that were made, we see the first deacons were appointed. Uh, verse 3, the apostles say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty to be uh, basically deacons in the church. Uh, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so uh, what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, uh, Procurus, Nicarnar, and Timon, and Perimenus, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. They set them before the apostles. They prayed and laid their hands on them. No lot casting. Uh, they just chose seven men who fit this description, and they were appointed to be deacons. Similarly, in Acts chapter 13, we read, There were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So we have uh, out of this church, two men who were selected to become missionaries, to go plant churches in other places. And they didn't cast lots to decide who was going. The Holy Spirit told them. Now, was this an audible voice? Was this just sort of an impression that they had? How did uh, the Spirit speak to them? I don't know. But the point is, the Spirit communicated exactly who God wanted, and they didn't have to flip a coin. Here's another example, Acts 14. Uh, when they appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So uh, you see them appointing elders, and they, they prayed, they fasted, and then they committed them to the Lord. Uh, no casting of lots mentioned there. If you read Paul's letter to Titus, he says in chapter 1, so kind of along these same lines, Titus, uh, to Titus, my true child in the common faith, uh, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he tells Titus, go from town to town. Uh, Paul has established churches 
all over the island of Crete. And so Paul tells Titus, I left you there, and I want you to go for, to each church and appoint elders in those churches. And in the following verses, he basically says, look for someone of good reputation, someone who's well-studied, able to teach, uh, somebody who isn't a drunk or a greedy person, things like that, and appoint them as pastors of each church. Nothing about cast a lot to decide. Uh, over in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas, they have a disagreement over whether or not to take John Mark with them on their next missionary trip. And they could have settled that pretty easily by casting lots, but they didn't. Instead, they actually ended up parting ways over this. Now, I understand all of that is an argument from silence. Okay, Just because casting lots isn't mentioned again, that doesn't automatically mean it's wrong for us to do today. But it would seem to me that casting lots is a feature of the old covenant that is done away with once the Spirit comes and indwells people. So uh, from the time of the Spirit's coming in Acts chapter 2, from then on, the Holy Spirit communicates God's will at times to people, but casting lots doesn't seem to be used. So that is my best answer to that question. Next one, was Matthias the right choice? Uh, again, Luke just tells us what happened. He doesn't tell us if this was the right decision or not. Uh, I will mention Matthias is never mentioned again in all of the book of Acts. Uh, Matthias actually is never mentioned again in the Bible. This is the only mention of him. Uh, Matthias never writes any of our scripture in the New Testament. And so there, is there any way to know for sure whether Matthias is truly an apostle chosen by Jesus through the casting of lots, or was this a mistake? We're going to come back to this question in a minute. Uh, next, did Judas even need to be replaced? Uh, why does it have to be 12 apostles? Uh, well, for one thing, this one I have a pretty clear answer on. Uh, for one thing, there is a parallel between the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. Uh, these were the 12 leaders of the early church, and the church is pictured throughout the New Testament as the culmination of Israel's hope. Uh, Christianity is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. His kingdom is the reign of Yahweh on earth. And so the parallel between the 12 tribes in the Old Testament and, and the 12 apostles in the New, I think, is important. In fact, Jesus told the apostles that they would sit on 12 thrones one day when his kingdom was complete. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of of Israel. So Jesus makes a correlation there between the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. Also, Revelation, we know uh, that the names of the 12 apostles are going to be written on the foundation stones of the city in the New Jerusalem. Uh, Revelation 21 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So you got 12 names, 12 thrones, there must be 12 apostles. And so that means somebody needs to replace Judas. Uh, Judas needed to be replaced, by the way, not because he died, but because he defected. All of the apostles died. Uh, when James dies in a few chapters, they don't replace him. The point is there must be 12 apostles as the foundation of the church, and these are those who will sit on 12 tribes in heaven. Judas is not going to be in heaven. He defected. Uh, thus, he needed to be replaced. And so Peter was correct that the scriptures predicting Judas's replacement needed to be fulfilled which leads to question number four. Was Peter the one to fulfill it? Was it Peter's place to do this? And this is really the crucial question uh, in my mind. Jumping back just briefly to the opening verses of Luke, uh, we read in verse one, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit, notice this, 
to the apostles whom he, Christ, had chosen. Jesus chose his apostles. Uh, they don't get to appoint each other. Jesus handpicked each one of them. And so the question is, did Jesus choose Matthias or did Peter and the others? And the answer to that sort of depends on if you think lot casting was letting Jesus choose. Certainly that was their intention. They prayed and said, Lord, show us whom you've chosen. So the casting of lots, their intention in that was to say, okay, we want Jesus to choose. <clears throat> so that seems uh, like, like one argument. But uh, on the other hand, at best, Peter gave Jesus two options to choose from. And then he flipped the coin to decide. Uh, but there is another apostle that we know for sure Jesus chose, and that's the apostle Paul, which leads to the last question. What about Paul? Could it be that the replacement for Judas Iscariot was supposed to be the Apostle Paul, in which case Matthias being chosen would be a mistake? This would seem to be a strong possibility, considering unlike Matthias, who's never talked about again in the New Testament, uh, never writes any of our New Testament books, the Apostle Paul is one of the people focused on the most. Uh, half of the book of Acts is all about Paul, tracing his missionary journeys, retelling his sermons, uh, Paul, of course, writes 13 books of the New Testament. And so perhaps this theory is correct, that it was, wasn't Peter's place to choose the replacement for Judas. Rather, Jesus had in mind someone else that he was going to choose later in the Apostle Paul. Now, the reason I go through all of that is to demonstrate something that will come up uh, a few times in the book of Acts. Luke will tell us what happened, uh, but he doesn't always tell us if what happened is an example for us to follow or if it was wrong. It's easy to assume uh, that Peter was doing the right thing here, but nowhere does the text say that. And as in this particular case, it's a bit tricky to know for sure one way or the other. So after about a week and a half of wrestling with this issue myself, I decided to consult Twitter. I posted the reference here on my Twitter page because I have a bunch of theological nerdy friends that uh, we like to talk about these things. And so I just asked, what are your thoughts on this? And I got some pretty compelling arguments from both sides. So rather than just give you my answer to this, I'm going to put on the screen uh, some of the responses that I got. We'll tally up the points and see who ends up winning. The first question, of course, is whether or not this was Peter's place to replace Judas or not. Uh, those who say that this was the right choice, they obviously think Peter did the right thing. He was uh, the leader of the early church. Jesus had given him the keys in Matthew 16 to bind and loose. Therefore, Peter made the right call. Uh, so one point for that side. Uh, the other side would say, no, Jesus alone had the authority to choose his apostles. He chose the 12. He obviously chose Paul. He appears to Paul. He appoints him as an apostle, just like the others. Jesus didn't, in the same way, handpick Matthias. I think this is a strong argument for that side that says it's the wrong choice. So we'll give them one point as well. Uh, those who think that this was the right choice, they'll also point out that Luke never says anything that even implies that what Peter did here was wrong. That's true. But Luke also doesn't say that what Peter did here was right. Uh, still, it does seem to me that if it were wrong of Peter to do this, we would expect some sort of indication of that. Uh, and instead of, of that, Luke actually shows them praying, seeming to entrust the choice to God, seeking to fulfill scripture. All of that seems to be indications uh, that are in favor of this action. So while Luke doesn't come right out and tell us one way or the other, I think a natural reading of the text maybe would lead you to believe that this was the right choice. So we'll give him half a point uh, for that one. 
Next, the right choice people would say that casting lots was a legitimate means of determining God's will. Again, throughout the Bible, there are several examples. Proverbs 16 says that casting lots is decided by God. So at least at this time, uh, this seems to be legit. Peter was making sure that God and God alone made this choice. They prayed, they cast lots, they followed God's direction. One point for that side. Uh, the wrong choice people would come right back and say, but Paul wasn't there. Uh, Paul wasn't even a Christian yet. So the issue isn't with the method of casting lots. Jesus didn't tell them to do this. He said, go to Jerusalem, wait for the Spirit. So even if casting lots in and of itself isn't a problem, it doesn't mean that they were right to do this. And technically, God didn't choose who the two candidates were. Uh, if Paul is indeed the 12th apostle, casting lots between Matthias and Justice is limiting God, uh, God's choice to one of two wrong options. So point for them as well. An argument against Paul being one of the 12 is that he doesn't fit the qualifications laid out in verses 21 to 22. Peter says uh, the replacement for Judas has to be somebody who had been with them all throughout Jesus' ministry, starting with the baptism in the Jordan all the way to the ascension. Paul wasn't there for that. Uh, so he can't be one of the 12 apostles. The problem I have with that reasoning is Jesus didn't say that. Uh, Peter came up with those criteria uh, from everything that we can see in, in Acts 1. So Paul didn't have to be with them the whole three and a half years. Uh, Jesus had every right to choose someone like Paul years after the fact. So the criteria that Paul came up with uh, doesn't necessarily prove anything one way or the other. Uh, let's start with the other side just to mix things up a bit. Uh, some would say that what Peter did here was wrong because after all, there's only supposed to be 12 apostles. We know Jesus chose Paul. Therefore, Matthias can't be an apostle or we'd have 13. Point for them. Now, in response, the people on the other side would say, uh, yes, there are 12 tribes of Israel. This is going to be hard to follow, uh, sort of. But there's kind of 13 tribes because Joseph's inheritance was actually split between his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. If you're a very astute Old Testament reader, uh, maybe you've picked up on this before. There were actually 13 tribes of Israel. And of the 13, one tribe, the tribe of Levi, was unique. Uh, God set them apart to be priests. Uh, they didn't get an apportionment of land. Their office was very different than the other tribes. So these people would say, in a corresponding way, Paul was the 13th apostle, just like the tribe of Levi was the 13th tribe. He was an apostle of a different order. He wasn't with Jesus throughout the earthly ministry. He was chosen later, uh, sent out to be an apostle to the Gentiles, so a, a special and different kind of apostle from the twelve. Now, i got to give a point for that, because that's a really intriguing argument, and whoever came up with that was really using their brain well, so kudos. Uh, now, we got to do a five and a half here, because the wrong choice people had a response to this response. Uh, so in response to the argument that Paul was the 13th apostle, like uh, Israel had 13 tribes, the other side would point out that in Revelation 7, Dan is not counted as one of the 12 tribes, and Levi is. Okay, so while there were technically kind of 13 tribes in the Old Testament, uh, there are eventually only 12 in Revelation. It's as if Dan was replaced by Levi. Uh, Dan was the apostate tribe of Israel, and so they said, just like God knew from the beginning that the tribe of Dan would defect and be replaced by the tribe of Levi, God knew that Judas would defect and that Paul would replace him. Thus, Paul is indeed the 12th apostle, replacing the apostate Judas, and Matthias was a mistake. And so uh, the point is there, the parallel with the tribes of Israel can work either way. So point for them. 
The wrong choice people would point out that Matthias is never mentioned again in the New Testament. He never writes any of the books of the Bible like several of the apostles did, including Paul. So point for them. Uh, the other side would say that doesn't necessarily prove anything because uh, it's also true of several of the others of the 12. Bartholomew is never mentioned again in the New Testament. Uh, same with Andrew or Thomas. They never write any New Testament books. So the fact that Matthias seems to fall off the story and Luke uh, continues uh, to tell things about the Apostle Paul, it doesn't necessarily prove that Matthias wasn't a true apostle. So we'll give them a point for that. Uh, those who think Peter did the right thing would point out that Peter was an apostle of Jesus. He was interpreting these passages of Scripture, applying them to this action of replacing Judas Iscariot. We have to believe that he was correct since he had apostolic authority to speak on behalf of Jesus. So point for them. Uh, the other side would point out that Peter had not yet been filled with the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit is the one who directed Christ's apostles. Even in those texts that we read earlier in John, Jesus said, the Spirit's going to come. He's going to teach you all things. He's going to guide you. And so Jesus told them, wait for the Spirit. And these people would say, Peter was acting in haste here. So point for them. One final point. This is the one that kind of tips the scales for me. <clears throat> Luke mentions in Acts chapter 6, the 12 apostles, and this is before Paul's conversion. Okay, so Acts 6, verse 1, it says, In the days when the disciples were increasing in number, the church is thriving. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily uh, distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. So the, the people here are referred to by Luke as the 12, the 12 apostles. And this can't be referring, this can't be including Paul as, as a number of the 12, because Paul wasn't an apostle yet. He wasn't even a Christian yet. And so these 12 who are called to this meeting, they would say, has to include Matthias as number 12, which means that Luke seems to be validating the choice of Matthias made back in Acts chapter 1. Matthias, in other words, is viewed by Luke as a true apostle. So give the right choice people a point. If you want to know which way I lean on it, there it is. I think the choice of Matthias was correct to replace Judas Iscariot. Paul was a kind of unique 13th apostle chosen for a different kind of ministry. That's just my best guess. I don't know for sure. Maybe we should just flip a coin to decide. <clears throat> now, now that we've gone way deeper than that than you were probably expecting, uh, let's get really practical. How do we determine God's will for us today? I think this is a question at times that all of us as Christians wrestle with. We want to do God's will. We want to know what he wants us to do with our lives. Uh, we want to live in a way that pleases and glorifies God. But what do we do when it comes time to make a decision? How can I know what God wants me to do? Uh, last night I spent a few minutes just thinking about this. What does the Bible say about how we determine God's will? Setting aside the, the lot casting idea, since that doesn't seem to be normative in Scripture and doesn't happen at all after the coming of the Spirit, how can we know God's will for us today? Here are five things I jotted down, all of which I'll show you uh, scriptural support for. Number one, obey the revealed will of God. Uh, this is what Peter demonstrated so well in our text. He's reading his Bible, and he says, we've got to replace Judas because of what God's word says right here. And whether or not he interpreted and applied those perfectly here or not, he certainly had the right motive. Uh, we must start by studying scripture and seeking to obey everything God has revealed to us in his word. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, 
that we may do all the words of this law. Uh, pretty simple. Uh, there are hidden things that only God knows, and then there are things that are revealed in Scripture, and those are for us to obey. So start there. If the Bible says it, do it. If the Bible says not to do it, don't. That will solve at least some of these questions for you. God's will is never going to contradict God's word because God never changes his mind. So if you want to know God's will for your life, start with what he's told us in Scripture. Start with the revealed things. Now, that doesn't answer everything specifically. Uh, we know we're supposed to commit ourselves to a church, but which church? Uh, we know we're supposed to work hard, but at which job? Uh, we know that marriage is sanctioned by God as a good gift, but who specifically am I supposed to marry? Uh, and so while obeying the revealed things is a start, there are plenty of specific questions that that won't answer. The Bible doesn't tell us uh, which job to take, where to move, which house to buy, those types of things. So what do we do with all of that? Next point, pray for wisdom and then actually use it. <clears throat> James 1 verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. This is a prayer that every Christian ought to be praying regularly. We ought to pray this about decisions that we're seeking God's will for. I don't know if it's wrong to ask God to show you what to do, to lead you in a choice that you need to make. Uh, we have to understand, though, that God isn't always going to show us a clear and undeniable sign from heaven that will tell us exactly with certainty what we are supposed to do. If that were the case, if I could go throughout my life with a coin to flip and just know <clears throat> what God's will was in every situation, then why does the Bible say so much in Proverbs about gaining wisdom? The fact is, God has given us brains, and he expects us to ask for wisdom and to make choices with the wisdom that he provides, which is not the same thing as trusting in a sign or a clear direction from God about what to do. Wisdom means, at times, evaluating pros and cons, considering long-term effects of these decisions. We ought to pray and ask that God would give us such wisdom. Number three, establish God-glorifying priorities. Will this job change affect my relationship with God or with my church or with my family? I'm wanting to move to another state so I can make more, more money. I have this job offer, but have I found a solid Bible teaching church to join there? These are the sorts of questions that Christians think through. That doesn't mean there's a simple answer all the time, but if your priorities are aligned properly, that should provide a framework for considering these decisions. Uh, I don't like using myself too much as an illustration. Uh, one of my favorite preachers says, uh, basically, always be a, uh, or uh, never trust a, a preacher who uses himself and is always the hero of his own stories. Uh, but as I was thinking about this, I did think of a few decisions I've made recently, and I uh, thought it would be helpful to show you practical examples. Recently, I left my job at Amazon, uh, worked there for, I don't know, two years or so, hated it, uh, <laughs> to work at a warehouse over in Hammond. It was a significant pay cut, uh, but the schedule would be better for my work here at the church. I felt I could be a more effective pastor and preacher if I made this switch. Uh, also, it happens to be the same place that my wife works. And so now we're able to spend more time together carpooling, things like that. Those are some of the things that sort of informed uh, my thinking and taking that job, among other things. Certainly, you have to weigh other factors, pay, benefits, work environment, not saying to ignore those things. But if we're seeking as Christians to glorify God, uh, we need to make sure our priorities are aligned. Factors like our relationship with God, with his church, with our family, these things ought to be high on our priority list. My wife and I also recently bought a house. Uh, that process really throughout, we've tried to, we tried to uh, follow the things that we laid out here. 
Uh, beyond just prayer and seeking to apply wisdom, things like looking for a house that we could afford, uh, and that would work well practically for us, we also tried to think about the decision with our church as a priority as well. Uh, one of our criteria for the house was uh, I did not want to be any further than 10 minutes from our church. Uh, for many reasons, to be able to invite people over to our house from the church and to be able to invite people that we live near to our church. And so choosing a home in that small radius limited our options in some ways. I also wanted a large enough uh, open room area so that we could have a good group of people from our church over. Even as we're doing some work to the house right now, we're uh, looking to get our driveway paved. We're thinking about how much space are we going to need to have people over from our church and uh, maybe everybody can come over for a barbecue sometime, maybe this summer. We have a lot of work to do on the house. But uh, these are the types of questions that I'm, that I'm talking about. If you have uh, your relationship with God, your relationship with God's people, your relationship with your family, if these are your top priorities, that should inform and direct some of your decisions and choices about how you'll spend your money, how you'll spend your time and decisions and choices that you'll make. Will I be able to better serve my church or be a witness for Christ? or spend more time in scripture and prayer if I make this choice? Just asking, what effect will this have on my God-given priorities? The most important things in my life. In other words, we're basically asking, will this choice or will that choice glorify God more? And in some cases, again, there's not always a clear answer to that question, uh, but just asking those sorts of questions and thinking that uh, through that lens, acknowledging God in our daily decisions is vital for a Christian. Proverbs 3, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths, uh, he will make straight your paths, or he will direct you in the way you should go. Seek to glorify God first. As Jesus put it, seek first his kingdom, and God will take care of the rest. I really believe that God takes care of those who seek to honor him. Now, that doesn't mean that you spend all day in prayer instead of getting a job, because one of the things that God tells us to do is to work diligently. But if we put God first in our lives and in our decisions, really orienting our lives around our devotion to Christ, I believe God blesses that kind of God-centeredness in our lives. If we call Jesus our Lord, if we have pledged our lives to his service, then of course we ought to consider with each major choice that we make, what course of action best accomplishes our goal of glorifying and obeying God. Uh, next, this one will go faster. God's will is always that you would be sanctified. I get that straight from what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God. Here it is, your sanctification. Now, sanctification simply means uh, being made holy. God's will for every Christian is that we would become more like Christ the longer that we live and serve him, uh, growing more and more to live in a manner that is pleasing to our Lord. Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, meaning work, work your, the salvation inside of you out into your life. Verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is God's will for you. He wants you to be pure and holy, to live a life dedicated to his service, to experience freedom from sin. And so when faced with a decision and you're wondering, what is God's will? Ask yourself, how will this decision make me more like Jesus? Or will it have a net negative effect 
on me spiritually. Again, not every decision will this apply to, you know, what house you buy, that may not apply. But uh, that sort of choice, <clears throat> uh, though it may not be guided by this principle necessarily, uh, many other choices will be, and we ought to be thinking about these things. Uh, last point, make a decision and trust God's providence. Uh, sometimes you won't know God's will before making a decision. That's just the reality. And so you make sure that your heart is pure before God. You ask him for wisdom and guidance. You evaluate the decision using wisdom uh, and in view of your God-glorifying priorities. And then you just make a choice. And you trust that God's providence will prevail through those ordinary means. Uh, over in Acts 21, Paul is wanting to go to Jerusalem. He's convinced that it's God's will for him to go. And others are trying to persuade him not to. There's people there that want him dead. And so they're, they're telling him, don't go to Jerusalem. Uh, verse 12 says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not uh, only, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Uh, Paul, at the end of the day, had to make a choice. And when the choice was made, they left it up to the providence of God. May his will be done. The fact is, God rarely reveals his will ahead of time in a clear way. It does happen at times, to be sure. But more often, we have to pray for wisdom and make a choice that we believe glorifies God and then trust that he will guide us in that process. There is freedom in God's will. I don't think we need to panic as if unless we're 100% certain about a decision, we can't make it until we hear from God or receive some sign. Make sure that you're obeying the revealed things. Ask God for wisdom, pray about these decisions, and then make a choice. God knows if we're truly desiring to please him with our decision making. He knows our hearts, and so we make the choice and we trust that God was leading through that whole process. And this really brings us back to our text. Uh, Judas is a perfect example of the providence of God. Judas probably thought that he was thwarting God's plan. But in fact, he was doing exactly what God knew he would do. And God was in fact using Judas to get Jesus to the cross in order to save the world from sin. In other words, God's providence is bigger than our free will. That's not to say we don't make choices. We do. I believe they're real choices. We decide things. We're not robots that God is forcing to do things. But God allows us to make decisions, and yet he can say in Isaiah 46, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So for one, uh, one thing that we can know for sure that Peter got right was that the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Everything that the Bible says is God's word. The Holy Spirit inspired these authors. Uh, they didn't just come up with what they wrote in scripture. It's God's words. And as a result, if the Bible says it, it's true. If God says that Judas is going to betray Jesus, it's as good as done. If God says that centuries before this takes place, that the money would be used to buy a potter's field, that it's going to be exactly 30 pieces of silver, it's going to happen. And if God said in his word that Judas needed to be replaced, Peter was correct in believing that. 
It may or may not have been his place to start that process. Again, I think there's a healthy debate there, uh, not a very clear-cut issue. Uh, maybe he was being impatient. Maybe Paul was really the replacement. Or maybe what he did was right. And Matthias is an apostle. But the main lesson from this text seems to be that God will accomplish his purposes. Judas cannot thwart God's plans. God will fold all of that right in to what he's going to do. And if Judas disqualifies himself and commits suicide, the spread of, gospel, of the gospel will not be affected. God will replace him and use someone else in his stead.